Fort Lauderdale Airport resumed flight operations this morning after record-breaking flooding shut down parts of the city. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. WLRN's Broward County reporter talks about the torrential storms that produced devastating flooding in parts of Fort Lauderdale. Then, Black Maternal Health Week has raised awareness about the disparities black pregnant women face in the U.S. Two experts explain the factors that lead to why black women are more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications than other groups. And finally, two businessmen are suing a Miami City commissioner in federal court for allegedly abusing his power to harass their businesses. A WLRN investigative reporter provides insight into the federal civil trial. All of that today on the South Florida Roundup. I'm Wilkin Brutus, and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Rain, rain, go away. Parts of Broward County have had historic flooding this week. If your house or car flooded, then you know the brutal water places like Hollywood and even farms and southwest ranches have been taking on. The city of Fort Lauderdale and Broward County declared local states of emergency. Governor Ron DeSantis late Thursday afternoon also stepped in and declared a state of emergency in Broward. And the rain kept coming. Please continue to stay off the roads. Some streets remain flooded. And there are various roads with broken down cars and tow trucks continue to remove these to improve traffic flow. Again, please stay off the roads. Fort Lauderdale Mayor Dean Trantalis spoke to the damages as he updated people Thursday. The heaviest rainfall registered between 15 and 26 inches in some areas. In Fort Lauderdale, emergency workers are on high clearance buggies and airboats rescued stranded people whose homes flooded. Reunification centers have been set up. Have you been impacted? How are you doing? Share your experiences with us. Call us 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining us to discuss the devastating flooding that submerged parts of Fort Lauderdale is WLRN Broward County reporter Gerard Albert III. Gerard, how are you, man? Hey, welcome. I'm good. Thanks. Yeah, it's it's quite a historic moment we're dealing with right now in, in your particular region. You spoke to a homeowner who faced some serious damage. How are they doing? What was the conversation about? Yeah, we spoke this morning uh, after trying to get in touch for a while. Um, he actually lives with his mother and sisters and got a text while he was out Wednesday. It said, don't come home. Everything's flooded. You won't make it. It's dangerous. So... He um, couldn't get home. He tried to book a hotel in downtown, but he couldn't make it there because the roads were floated. So he ended up sleeping um, outside of a concert venue out there on Broward Boulevard, Revolution Live, with uh, what he described as several other people, some in their cars, some just on the streets, um, until the next morning when the water had gone down just a little bit. Wow. And, and speaking of that water going down, I can only imagine the fear of mold after this unprecedented flash flooding event. Why was this rain event so special, um, and, and for lack of better words, in terms of the flooding? Well, you know, it, 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 I, none of the government officials that I spoke to were prepared for this and said that, you know, even if we had tried, we couldn't. Um, I think the National Weather Service said that it was more than 15 inches of rain that did come down, came down within seven hours. Um, so it's all coming down all at the same time, very rapidly, at a time where um, 
we're not getting that much rain. We just came out of um, a dry season or a drought. Right, and, and that's a great context um, surrounding this story, that the fact that we are coming from a drought, and so this has certainly have been a very surprising type of, of, of um, weather event. We saw so many stranded cars that were stalled because of the high water. Uh, there was even a man caught swimming in the flood. Uh, you know, the, the videos of Broward Boulevard went completely viral on social media. Did this weather come on fast? What are some of the reasons we're seeing this? Yeah, those videos are, are pretty crazy to watch. Some of them uh, a bit apocalyptic looking, especially that, that one drone video of downtown Broward Boulevard. Right. Um, but yeah, it did, it did come on fast. I mean, it, it had, you know, rained for a couple of days before, but then on, on Wednesday, like I said, um, all within a few hours, we got so many inches of rain that just did not stop and did not stop. And it was during the day when people were at work. So you have people trying to leave work and go home uh, driving through the flooded streets, it was it was a mess. Yeah, I mean, this thing completely upended people's schedules <laughs> uh, so quickly. It's it's such a dire situation for a lot of folks. It's it's not just homes that are impacted by the flooding. By the way, what what should people do if their cars are flooded? Well, insurance companies um, say that they should reach out and file a claim immediately. Uh, they should do things like uh, call a tow truck. Um, they should mark the high water level in the car and that they shouldn't try and start the car because if there is still water in the engine or other parts of the car, it can really damage it. Uh, but that's what in- insurance companies have been stressing. I'm Wilkin Brutus. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're speaking with WLRN's Broward County reporter, Gerard Albert III, about the devastating flooding in parts of Flor- Fort Lauderdale. Have you been impacted? Call us, 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Uh, Gerard, so far, uh, there have been, have there been any reports of injuries or deaths? So far, there's been a lot of observations, of course, but any reports of injuries or deaths? No, uh, no injuries or deaths reported yet. There are um you know, rescue teams going out into the flooded neighborhoods and pulling uh, people out of their homes. Um, I've seen videos from the Fort Lauderdale Fire Department of uh, you know, a grown man wading through waist-deep water, carrying out a child from a house. Um, I've seen another one where a firefighter was carrying a woman in a wheelchair out of her house. So we're seeing things like that, but there have been no reported injuries or deaths uh, related to the floods. And I think this is a good time to segue to children of Broward County. Um, Broward County schools canceled classes and other activities Thursday and Friday. Are there any reports of damages on school campuses? You know, I think not yet. Um, They're going out to assess the damages. You know, schools in Florida have to be built um, to withstand Category 5 hurricanes. Um, They're often used as shelters. But that doesn't mean that flood damage uh, can't happen. So um, I I think we'll have to wait till uh, the start of next week or over the weekend to see uh, the extent of any damage that might have been done to schools. Yeah, it's it's definitely going to take some time here. And and just give me take me to the scene. Is is it mostly in the eastern part or western part or or are there parts of Fort Lauderdale that didn't even feel the effects of the torrential downpour? Uh, Take me to this sort of, you know, geographical location. What 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 region of Fort Lauderdale was impacted? Sure. Well, well, to quote the mayor at a press conference yesterday, you know, he did a tour of the city and said there's not one inch of the city that hasn't been affected. Um, the man, the the young man I spoke to this morning uh, lives 
if you can picture it, just east of I-95 and in between Broward Boulevard and Sunrise Boulevard. Um, so it get, got pretty far out west there. Um, it's obviously out east in the downtown area as you get closer to the ocean and the new river on Los Olas. But even, you know, it, it stretched far south. I mean, Dania Beach has a lot of low-lying areas that were flooded. Hollandale Beach uh, spoke to sources out there who um, were really worried about getting home through some of the streets. So, um, you know, I'm over in Plantation, which is pretty central and very far west in Broward. And my streets were very flooded and, wow. and all the retention ponds were coming up. So it's it it almost the whole county, I would say, uh, felt some of the flooding at least. So quickly. And of course, there's a, a broader picture um, when we're talking about this historic event. Um, have weather authorities mentioned any correlation to climate change at all? They've mentioned it. Um, and I think that a lot of government officials are mentioning it now. And, you know, uh, one that I spoke to a Broward County Commissioner, Steve Geller, you know, had this quote and he said, you know, South Florida was carved out of the Everglades and now it feels like it's returning to the Everglades. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the South Florida and Fort Lauderdale specifically have been making these changes and trying to make things more resilient just the other week they they made um rules that your seawall has to be higher now but um you know i think we're just seeing mother nature uh take its course and and at least this last week we were definitely not prepared for it yeah and, and I, I i like that i think that's apropos that that statement um we're, we're definitely a concrete jungle in a florida swamp for sure um and, and that can make you know i guess recovery quite difficult are, are there any reports of city crews clearing up drains and, and, and standing water? Yeah, they're out there with the pumps, um, pumping out water from neighborhoods. Um, the young man I spoke to this morning had been in constant contact with his city commissioner. And they're out there. I know the, the state is helping out now. Um, they're getting help from different agencies. Uh, they've got airboats from BSO. They've got big, uh, you know, massive buggies out there for rescue missions. Um, and there's a, a shelter set up at, at Holiday Park uh, with in collaboration with the Red Cross. Um, as of last night, there are approximately 600 people being uh, using that shelter. And um, I mean, I'm, I'm glad those shelters are, are available for folks uh, to take advantage of. What are weather experts saying about this record-breaking downpour? Well, just that—that that it is—is record-breaking. Um, you know, the word "unprecedented" has been overused the past couple of years, but that's the word that kept getting used. Is that um, you know they shattered the last record for April, which was made, uh, set in the '70s, and I think it 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 crushed it by almost a foot more uh of rain came down in fort lauderdale and based on your reporting based on your analysis you, you've covered broward county quite extensively um do you think this type of event will push the conversation forward in terms of authorities talking about revamping infrastructure in the county totally and it's a conversation that's being had constantly um but yeah this is going to i think put it at the forefront of everybody's mind and another thing that's in the forefront of everyone's mind is the serious sewer issues. Did, did that play into it? 
You know, there haven't been any, well, there's been a report, um, but it, uh, of, uh, water coming out of one of the Fort Lauderdale water treatment sites, but it was treated water, not sewage. Um, again, I think that's one of those things that we're going to have to wait a little bit and see, um, after the city kind of stops the bleeding, we're going to see kind of, okay, did these, uh, did the sewer water infiltrate any neighborhoods or anything like that? But so far, um, there's been no reports of that. Of course, it's Florida, quite unpredictable, Gerard. Can, can we expect to see more rain coming down in the next few days? And do you think officials are even prepared for it? Well, I think they're getting prepared and they're getting prepared very quickly if it does come. Um, you know, I, the weather in Fort Lauderdale and uh, South Florida is unpredictable. Um, so I'm not I, I, I don't want to be a meteorologist and, and, and say yes or no. But, um, you know, people should prepare. Um, and officials are preparing and they're doing it very quickly. Yeah. Earlier in the segment, you said you were actually impacted by it. How were you able to cope? How were you able able to get around and are you able to get around now? Yeah, well, I, uh, they raised the roads in my neighborhood a few years back after um, one of the tropical storms absolutely flooded it. Um, my house and a lot of the houses in the neighborhood uh, sit pretty high up, but the roads are lower and there's uh, plenty of retention ponds. So um, when I was driving home Wednesday night, you know, it, it felt for a second there like I was driving through a, a canal and I've got a, a, a car that's a little bit higher than most on an SUV. Um, but my sister and uh, my two sisters drive um, smaller cars and they couldn't drive through the neighborhood. We had to push their cars all the way to the top of the driveway. Um, but so far after that, it's it's gone down. But the, the roads flooding there um, after they were raised is is more and more rare. Wow. And, and I'm pretty sure there's a lot of neighbors talking about this right now, uh, folks who are impacted by this, because like we said earlier, videos were going viral on social media. Folks who are living outside of Florida assume that it's all of South Florida who are experiencing it. But I live in Palm Beach County. We had a little bit of rain, but but we did not have, you know, a, a cloud, a, a, a particular torrential storm sitting up and hovering above one particular area. Um, have you spoken to your neighbors? Like what 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 are they saying if you if you have? Well, I think it's we're a little used to it in South Florida, putting up with it, um, driving through it. Uh, but this one especially just caught everybody so off guard. And, uh, you know, a couple of folks have told me that. Take this with a grain of salt, of course, but, you know, they're just sick of it. Um, it's such an inconvenience. Uh, it doesn't happen in many other parts of the country. And why are we here putting up with it when we can go somewhere else? So there's that always ever present um, post natural disaster. Oh, I'm going to get out of this place. Um, kind of talk going around. Yeah. Were, were you, were you able to, to, to capture the scene yourself? Of course, folks were posting videos and, and photos. How surprised were you, um, when you saw the, the water? I was pretty surprised, uh, you know, just after two days of, of rain there, you know, especially kind of after the dry season that we had, um, I, I, I was a little shocked. I was like, wow, uh, you know, where did this come from? How did we not kind of prepare the drains and the, you know, water systems to to drain this a little bit better? But, um, you know, I'm a South Florida resident now, <laughs> too. So, <laughs> like, I, you know, I'm, I'm used to it. I, Okay, it rains for 20 minutes. Downtown is going to be flooded. There's going to be massive puddles. You know, I got my boots on. I may have to wade through some puddles while I park. But 
um, you know, that's what we put up with living down here. I, 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 I recently saw a meme where um, I, actually my producer showed me a meme where uh, someone is sort of like beneath water and his thumbs are up above water. And the caption shows um, that, you know, basically Floridians are showing signs of resilience, that we're almost <laughs> used to this type of stuff, uh, that folks from up north, if, if they were to come down, they probably wouldn't able to cope. Well, what does that say about our sort of propensity to show resiliency in these sort of historic weather moments? Well, yeah, I mean, you see it after hurricanes, too. Everybody comes together and helps out. You know, there are people that just will stay here forever and won't leave. Um, and, you know, for better or for worse, that's that's where we're living right now. And yeah. I think we're, you know, government officials and we're doing a lot of backtracking and trying to set the environment right. But, you know, how far have we pushed it? Right. Um, and, and how far... You know, we're, we're still developing places. We're still building out. So hmm. how much further can we push it? How far have we pushed it? That's the ongoing conversation. Gerard Albert III is WLRN's Broward County reporter. Thank you so much for your reporting, Gerard. Of course, Wilkin. Thank you. Still to come, as Black Maternal Health Week ends, we discuss the disparities Black pregnant women face in the U.S. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. It's Black Maternal Health Week across the U.S. It's a movement that places an urgent spotlight and a call for action on the disparities black pregnant women face in the U.S. Because regardless of education level or income, CDC data shows that black women are more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications than white, Asian, or Latina women. And this has led to local and national maternal health initiatives that raise awareness to the maternal health disparities in the U.S., where a recent devastating report, more than 700 women die each year while pregnant or after giving birth. That number is higher than any other developed countries, and a disproportionate number of mothers are dying are black. Mothers and future mothers especially want to know why pregnant women are dying at an alarming rate. Well, experts say there are a myriad of factors. Joining us to discuss some of those disparities is Dr. Dudley Brown. He's the president of Brown Institute for Health and Wellness and the vice chief of staff at Jupiter Medical Center. And Dr. Lisa Auguste, resident OBGYN at Jackson Memorial Hospital. Dr. Brown and Dr. Auguste, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, let, let's start in Palm Beach County. Uh, Dr. Brown, more and more black women are being exposed to information surrounding the alarming rate of pregnancy deaths in their county, in their community. Uh, in your experience in Palm Beach County, what are some of the concerns you've heard from black women before childbirth? I, I think the, the concerns that black women raise here in Palm Beach County um, are similar to to those that are raised nationally, um, just speaking to colleagues and 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 family um, all around the country, people have the same concerns. Um, you know the, the the shocking. Well, one of one of the many shocking parts of the data is that uh, 
there is no difference uh, in terms of outcome when you think about um, socioeconomic status um, or educational status, because um, you know, years ago when I was um, in training, the the and we talked about disparities in patient outcome and and some of the disparities that um, that black and um, uh, people of color face um, uh, in within the health within the healthcare system. There was always a disclaimer that it's related to um, um, socioeconomic status or educational status and so forth. Uh, and the data was clear that. That does not. Um, that is no. That is not true. So you know the folks are as the data has come out, have come out, and people have become more aware. They're raising similar concerns and alarm, um, alarm bells, and they're they're uh, just uh, concerned about uh, making it through pregnancy safely. Um, uh, basically, those are the concerns. And Dr. Goose, do you also echo uh, that? anecdotal experience do, do you sense a particular kind of fear from black women when you're dealing um with 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 pregnancy yeah absolutely i think our patients are recognized and are aware of the statistics and how alarming they are and oftentimes they're looking to us to kind of help mitigate those feelings and help them kind of understand what it is that's going on as best as we possibly can you know, Dr. Brown made a great point about um, how your socioeconomic conditions may vary, but it, it's, the, it's the same issue across the board. A common complaint from black women is that pain and suffering during the pregnancy stage is too easily dismissed, Dr. Auguste. Uh, in, in 2018, tennis legend Serena Williams talked about her near-death experiences during and after giving birth, which showed that, again, even high-earning, well-educated black women are not excluded from that pattern. For black women, how, how big of a role does implicit bias and the history of racism in the medical field play uh, during the pregnancy stages, Dr. Auguste? I think it's incredibly important because as, now that we've recognized that socioeconomic status makes no difference, it kind of makes us think back about, okay, what could it possibly be that leads to women, black women dying more than any other um, race of women. And we recognize that a lot of it is systemic and institutionalized racism that and bias that's being come into play. And so I think that we're doing a lot of work to educate and increase the amount of health equity and make sure that all providers are aware that although you may not know it and you may not recognize it, a lot of us are walking around with a bias that affects our patients and we don't even see it. Right, right. And, and I'll pose the same question to Dr. Brown. But before I do that, uh, Dr. Goost, what is Jackson doing about these alarming statistics? I'm sure there are women who saw that study and that study and wondered, where does my hospital stack up here? Um, what, what say you? Yeah, so I think that our, our department is doing a good job of trying to want to increase our diversity. I think a lot of what we recognize now is that Black women feel more comfortable when they have providers who look like them um, and they feel more comfortable. And it's been shown that black women do better with providers who look like them. And so by increasing the amount of black OBGYNs, black female OBGYNs we have, that definitely does play a role. Um, we also have started something we call health equity rounds, which um, happens once every six weeks and it's we take a patient a patient presentation and we look at not just the medical care that we provided but also 
the social aspects of the patient's care, what went wrong, what implicit biases and what systemic things that could have been changed and how we could have done better in terms of providing this patient equitable care. And we make sure that we present it and we listen to it as a department and we learn from it. Hmm. Um, also doing a lot of research in terms of kind of like seeing what our patient, our black patients need and how we can help provide that to them. And, and Dr. Brown, you own your own practice, but you're also at Jupiter Medical Center. Um, I'll pose the same question for you. How much does implicit bias and uh, the history of racism in the medical field play during the, the pregnancy stages? Um, it, it plays a significant role, right? So implicit, it would be what we've done for years as a society, but but specifically within healthcare, what we've done for years is assume that um, we 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 live and work in a vacuum, and that outside factors don't affect the care that we give. That we're that we as providers are naturally able to be impartial and unbiased with everything we do, and 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 black people both on the provider side and on the patient side within healthcare have been saying for years that that's an incorrect or faulty assumption and that and that healthcare isn't immune from ills of society there's no there's no field that's that's immune from the ills of society so implicit bias exists in all of our society and it exists in healthcare and um as dr august um correctly stated um um or implicit bias as it specifically um, pertains to, to race and, 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 and our patients and how we care for them, it, it affects the way we, um, we care for patients. It affects the way we come up with a diagnosis, we, we make a treatment plan, we listen to their complaints, um, um, and, and that's, in, in essence, it's sort of a natural way that, that people communicate because you communicate better with, with someone with whom you identify. You, you just talked so, about listening to folks' complaints. Is that the way in which implicit racism manifested itself? Was Serena Williams earlier, again, talked about how right. she felt dismissed whenever she was trying right. to seek help. Um, like, so in what ways do you mitigate that? And what, what are some of the best medical practices to avoid those cultural and communication barriers? So some of the things that Dr. August mentions that they're doing at Jackson, which is a, a teaching hospital, um, sounds amazing. And those are things... Those are things as a, as a society and as healthcare leaders that, um, that 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 we need to do. We need to first have conversations like this, right? We have them out in the open. Um, you know, um, I've been in practice twenty years now. My 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 black colleagues uh, um, um, and I have been having these conversations amongst ourselves for years, and now we're having these conversations in the open. And um, we need to we need to get buy-in from everyone. Um, um, we need to the, the same thing that we talk about in academics. We need to do in healthcare in terms of um, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion training. Uh, we need to, as Dr. August correctly stated, we need to uh, make sure that we have more providers that are representative of the community in which they serve. I, you know, that that that's a sort of a long-term goal and an and ambitious goal, and I think one that we should work hard towards. But I think a more immediate goal uh, would be the other factors, which is bring awareness to, to the subject, um, make full, um, you know, the, the data, the awareness started with the data, right? And a lot of people were shocked by the data. So now that we know that it exists, 
um, providers, um, and I've spoken to non-Black colleagues about this, and um, who were surprised. And 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 so as we talk about talk as a department at Jupiter Medical about bringing awareness to it, about tracking tracking data as as it pertains to patient outcomes, and about um, just shining a light on it so folks um, can be more aware of of how um, our biases can affect our care and and how patients do differently based on how they look. Yeah, let's let's talk about that data because um, you and Dr. Goose are uh, confirming a lot of the data, and I think it's even more important to educate the listeners about it uh, to get some more responses. We saw last month in a new report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that in 2021, the U.S. had one of the worst rates of maternal mortality in the country's history, a 40 percent increase from the previous year. And the U.S. rate for 2021 was 32.9 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births, which is more than 10 times the estimated rates for, you know, of some other higher income countries, high income income countries such as Australia, Austria, Israel, Japan and Spain, which all hovered between two and three deaths per 100,000 in 2020. Uh, and, you know, that's across the board. But we know more of the women who are dying are black mothers like we've established here. Um, are there other not so well-known reasons for why black pregnant women are losing their lives? Is it preconditioned is issues? Dr. Goose, you, you want to respond to that? Um, well, I think that based on my experience, we see that, you know, a lot of our patients who, and we talk about socioeconomic factors don't still um, aren't the only, aren't predictive, but we see that a lot of our patients who are Black and who don't have access to um, the same level of health care that patients of other races do often have worse outcomes. Um, we see that a lot of times patients who are Black and don't have providers who look like them don't feel comfortable expressing their concerns, or as you previously said, may feel like their concerns may not be addressed and there's an overall distrust in the healthcare system, knowing what they like having experienced the healthcare system before and what other family members have experienced. And it leads to essentially not establishing care or not being able to speak their concerns. And then sometimes you find that some of their issues um, are essentially dealt a lot later than they could have been or prevent or could have been prevented if they had someone they felt comfortable talking to. And, and some of those issues could be preconditions like high blood pressure or, or, or diabetes or, or other Absolutely. of sorts, right? Um, yeah. Right. I'm Wilkin right. Oh, I'm Wilkin Brutus. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Uh, for Black Maternal Health Week, we're speaking with Dr. Dudley Brown and Lisa Auguste about the disparities Black pregnant women face in the U.S. Join this conversation, 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Dr. Brown, I interrupted you. My apologies. No, sorry. no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, interrupted, I, I interrupted you. I just kind of wanted to piggyback what Dr. Auguste just said. And, to, and, and you know, you, you mentioned the recent data showing a 40% increase in, in maternal death. Right. Um, 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 and it, it, we, we, it, you know, it, 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 we can't go without mentioning that that significant increase was primarily because of COVID, right? And so, and that doesn't mean that 
you know, um, black maternal health or 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 or, or, the, or healthcare amongst black and brown folks um, um, sh- shouldn't be still targeted because the the discrepancies we saw mm-hmm. in black maternal mor- morbidity, meaning um, 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 people who had poor outcomes or suffered severe disease and mortality, meaning people who died, um, um, we saw that we saw that um, racial discrepancy still persist within COVID for various reasons in terms of how um, black and brown folks did worse with COVID. And the same thing happened with black and brown pregnant people during COVID. They had a, they had a higher rate of, of, of maternal deaths. Um, and this was, you know, um, you know, there you can check the boxes in terms of low vaccination rate and miseducation mm-hmm. and, and and all those other things that we talked about. Um, but that was that was primarily responsible um, for the 40 percent increase for that it, was, it was a covid effect. Right. There, there's a growing number of black women deciding to use labor and postmortem. I'm sorry, postpartum doulas and certified midwives, people who provide emotional support during childbirth stages. Uh, Dr. Goose, do you see them in your delivery room? What benefits do they typically serve in those moments? Um, for us, we don't have as many doulas, but I will say the few that I have experienced have actually been very helpful. Um, in a teaching hospital, especially with the size of Jackson Memorial Hospital, we do our labor floor, we can have up to 15 laboring patients at a time. And sometimes it's hard as a provider to be able to provide um, that one-on-one attention that a laboring patient deserves throughout their entire labor course. So doulas are able to be in the room at all times and kind of help support the mom in between the times that um, essentially the obstetrics team can be in the room. And I think that, you know, when you have a good relationship with a doula, the doulas oftentimes help and kind of promote other things that we know work in obstetrics and they can be a really good resource for our patient and help lead to a really good laboring experience. Hmm. We do have a call on the line, Alexis from Fort Lauderdale. Alexis, how are you? Well, thank you. Uh, so I just wanted to share a recent experience because I think it touches on exactly what you guys are talking about as well as uh, offers an inverse of the reality of what they're seeing. So. My wife delivered two weeks early. Our, our, our son was, was born at 37 weeks uh, last Wednesday. And uh, my wife went for her 37-week ultrasound uh, and was complaining to her doctor about a pain um, coming Congratulations, from Congratulations, by the way. Her, thank you very much. But she was complaining of a pain coming from uh, her, her C-section scar from, from the birth of our first two kids. And uh, thankfully, the doctor listened to her. And because he listened to her and they looked at it, they saw that, you know, the amount of uh, fluids that she had was over, you know, two times the amount that a, a woman should have at that point in pregnancy. They immediately sent her to the, to the to the hospital and delivered the baby the same day. Come to find out she was literally hours away from, uh, from a tear in her uterus, which would have been life-threatening for not just her, but also the baby. So thankfully, mom and baby are fine. But, uh, you know, the baby went straight to the NICU and... Uh, you know, the, the, what, what the information we got from the doctors in the NICU um, was that, um, you know, the nurses prepare for the babies in advance when they know a baby's going to NICU. And one of the questions they ask is, what race is the baby? And because if it is a black female, then they have the, actually the fastest rate of recovery in the NICU. And if it's a white male, they have the uh, slowest rate of recovery in the NICU. 
So I just thought that was really interesting. One, because again, what you guys are talking about is, is very important because, you know, my wife switched her OBs because uh, of previous issues and doctors not listening right. to her. So thank God she, she found the right doctor that listened to her and literally saved her life and the life of my son. Uh, but also that um, the racial disparity in healthcare kind of is, is completely on its head in the NICU in terms of recovery. So I'm curious what your panel thinks about that. Uh, well, and, and describe what the NICU and, and, and Dr. Goose, you want, you want to respond to that and also describe what that, what that is for folks who may not know? Um, so the NICU is the neonatal ICU, um, babies who have some, some sort of complication, either if they are delivered early or there's um, sometimes babies have essentially an issue when they're born that needs to be further worked up or they need a little bit of elevated level of care. They usually go to the NICU where there's nurses and doctors and people who monitor the baby and give them medication and take care of them around the clock. Um, and it is interesting because for our babies who are born preterm, we do have something essentially that tells us how babies generally tend to do. It's a calculator that we sometimes use. And babies who, female babies who are Black on the calculator generally do, based on the data that has been shown, generally do do better in terms of their outcomes when they're born. Hmm. Um, and and Dr. Brown, do, do you have any response to, to, to Alexis's experience? Um, also, congratulations um, to you and your family. Um, you know, I think that, you know, my comment would be um, that, I, that the, I'm glad that um, his wife um, and that as a family, they were proactive in choosing their provider. And I'm glad that um, they were able to communicate with their provider and their provider listened um, because, you know, this is an example of, of what we want um, for everyone. You know, we want everyone to be able to, to, to be heard, right, to be seen and to be heard um, because it, it does affect your care because if another provider hadn't listened or if another patient had felt, hadn't felt comfortable enough to share um, that she she was having a pain that some that someone else could have assumed was just a normal 37 week pregnancy pain, then the outcome could have been different. So um, so on that level, um, I, I just wanna say kudos to everyone involved. Absolutely. And people are definitely listening uh, to our conversation right now. We have another phone call from Paul um, out of South Miami. Uh, Paul, what's your question and how are you? Uh, very good. <laughs> so I'll be very, very quick. I, I was on the faculty of the School of Social Work at FIU for 30 years. But early on, I worked with Michael Liu. And you, you should look him up. Uh, he's at Berkeley School of Public Health now as the dean. But he dealt with allostatic loads. <clears throat> which is stress. And uh, we did uh, a series of studies comparing uh, African descent women who were born in the United States with African descent women who were born outside the United States. And the outcome difference is very stark, <laughs> very significant. So something happens to black women and girls in this case as they grow up that develops that level of cortisol and other things in the body. So what you're doing on the uh, sort of on the back end is really great, but we should pay attention to the front end also to see whether we can make an impact. So Dr. Uh, I guess I don't 
I don't have a question. Really. <laughs> no, no, no. That's that, we really appreciate your, your your statement and your question, Paul. Doctor Goose, what, what make you? What are your thoughts on his um, observation? Yeah, um, I've read research and data like that before. So the thought is that because of a lot of the racist racism, discrimination, and bias that happens in the United States, that there is something that possibly could be affecting um, the genetics of Black women, and it could be why that they are possibly having um, essentially increased bad outcomes. Um, I personally am an immigrant woman myself. I was born on the island of St. Lucia, moved here when I was about 14. And so I see the difference in terms of women who are born outside of the country and when they come here and kind of like how they their thoughts are changed, how they feel differently, how they experience this country um, coming from somewhere where they did not experience racism um, and it because they live in the majority. So mm-hmm. I think it's an important part of the research that's still being done and we're still figuring out how to combat and how we can help women in these in this term. Right. Dr. Lisa Auguste is the resident OBGYN at Jackson Memorial Hospital. And Dr. Dudley Brown is the president of Brown Institute for Health and Wellness and the vice chief of staff at uh, Jupiter Medical Center. Thank you both for your expertise on this subject. Still to come, a Miami City commissioner is being sued in federal court by two businessmen for allegedly harassing small businesses. Join us, 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. A Miami City commissioner is being sued in federal trial court by two businessmen for allegedly abusing his power to harass their private businesses. They accused Commissioner Joe Carollo of using the city's code enforcement office, police and the fire department to harass them and their little Havana businesses. And it goes much deeper than that. A former Miami City manager also testified that Commissioner Carollo also, quote, terrified the city staff and felt he was, quote, targeting a little Havana businessman's properties for building code violations. The civil trial began or began Monday in Fort Lauderdale. Joining us now to discuss the trial is Joshua Ceballos. He's in the studio with me right now. He's WLRN's local government accountability reporter and member of the investigations team. Joshua, what's up? Hey, man. Happy to be here. Great to see you, man. Uh, There are obviously a lot of moving pieces when it comes to federal trials. Uh, Take us back to the alleged claims. Uh, Who who filed the lawsuit against Miami City Commissioner Joe Carollo and why? Right. So the the plaintiffs are Little Havana business owners, Bill Fuller and Martin Pinilla. They own a bunch of different properties or they have stakes in a lot of different properties. Bill Fuller is part owner of the Ball and Chain Bar on Calle Ocho. Uh, they also own uh, Futurama, which is like an art gallery space in Cayocho. They have a lot of businesses down there. And they sued in 2018, and their claim is that they supported Joe Carollo's political opponent in a 2017 runoff election, Alfie Leon. They paid for his uh, campaign commercials. They held rallies for him. And then Joe Carollo won, and they claim that right after that happened, Joe started using um, code enforcement and trying to... Uh, do complaints against their businesses, saying that they had, you know, all kind of lacking licenses, lacking permits, shutting down their events, and allegedly harassing their their tenants, stuff like that. 
And there's obviously a lot of folks who are involved in, in this trial right now. Uh, former Miami City manager uh, Emilio Gonzalez was called to testify. Uh, what did he say during his testimony? Yeah, so Emilio Gonzalez, he was city manager around the time Joe got back into office and he left in early 2020. And he said that, yeah, Joe took him around on tours of Little Havana and pointing out specific businesses that he thought had issues, code violations, or he thought didn't belong in the neighborhood. And some of those some of those businesses belong to, to Bill Fuller. And he testified that, you know, Carroyo was putting pressure um, from at the commission and through public records requests and emails on code enforcement and different employees to go after Fuller's businesses. And uh, Emilio, uh, Gonzalez said, yeah, my, my employees were terrified of him and terrified that they needed to do what he said, even though technically a commissioner cannot direct um, a city employee to do anything. They felt like they were being pressured to do so. You think they were, uh, well, from, from his claims, felt bullied to some extent? Yeah. So they, it's what it seemed like because in a specific city commission meeting, um, Joe had brought a bunch of, uh, Croyo had brought a bunch of city employees to, to speak and said, why are you not going after these businesses? We They have code violations. You're not doing your jobs. And um, they played a video during the trial of former police chief Jorge Colina uh, coming up and saying, you're not going to bully me. I'm not intimidated by you like everybody else. Wow. Yeah. So it was very intense, heated exchange that the jurors got to see. Uh, in your reporting, you mentioned how Gonzalez testified that Carollo took him on walking tours through Calle Ocho, um, where several of the businesses were located. Take us through that exchange. What what was Why was that important? Yeah. So uh, Gonzalez testified that Carollo took him on two different walking tours around Calle Ocho, where um, when he first became city manager, basically saying like, oh, this is what I think of these businesses. One of them was at midnight. He asked him to come out at midnight. To midnight. Look at midnight to walk around and see like, oh, suppose allegedly Carollo said, oh, I have problems with this because I think they have they're doing work without permits or this doesn't really fit the character of the neighborhood because it's not Hispanic enough. Like there's an oyster. He mentioned an oyster bar that he said um, that's not Hispanic. It doesn't belong here. And then there was one kind of big moment in the in the testimony where Gonzalez said Carollo pointed to a mural that had um, black people on it and said, I don't like that mural has too many black people on it, allegedly said, and um, that he didn't want people to think Little Havana was becoming a black neighborhood. Um, when when uh, Gonzalez testified that on the stand, there was a lot of, it felt like the air got sucked out of the room and Carroyo's attorney stood up and was like, objection, and, and raised like six different objections, all of which the judge, who happens to be black, uh, overruled all of those objections and kind of let it stand. This this is so Florida. It's, <laughs> I mean, any yeah. streaming service can pick up uh, th this type of um, news and, and the allegations are absolutely massive. Uh, you talk about the courtroom. Can you describe what the atmosphere is like in this federal civil trial courtroom? What what have you observed? Yeah, so I mean, it's 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 fascinating because, you know, Carroyo has his, his large team of attorneys from many different law, law firms all sitting at a table. And Carroyo will kind of alternate between sitting next to his attorneys, right next to Mark Sarnoff, who's actually a former city commission, uh, city commissioner, and who donates to Carroyo's campaigns, and now he's his attorney. So either sitting next to him or sitting next to his wife Marjorie, um, in, on one of the benches. And while the while the plaintiffs and their teams are testifying, Carroyo is writing down notes on a legal pad and and passing notes to his attorneys and you know, talking to them and pulling them aside and asking them things. But then um, sometimes, like when the jury walked in, he put his arm around his wife and kind of looked at them. 
Uh, so it was, it's, I mean, you're right. It's very Florida. And what's interesting to me is, so I watch a lot of Miami city commission meetings and this is kind of par for the course. You know, this is, it's usually, so this is normal. This is normal. <laughs> this is absolutely. And even Gonzalez said it on the stand. He's like, this is just how it is. It's a, it's a circus. And, but the Fort, it, this, uh, this trial is going on in Fort Lauderdale. So these are Broward jurors and they're getting to watch snippets of commission meetings and they get to see how crazy it is. And it's kind of really interesting to see that. Wow. And, and, and so the trial is still going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, when will the trial return? Yeah, so it was on Monday and Tuesday, and then there's there's been a recess, um, and it comes back on next Monday, the 17th, um, with the testimony of former police chiefs Jorge Colina and Art Acevedo, which is sure to be a very interesting day of testimony. Um, and then it's going to be going on for several weeks. The The plaintiffs have a bunch of um, witnesses coming up, including former Carollo aide Steve Miro, and then the, the defense has to go through there. So it's, it's going to take some time. Joshua Ceballos is WLRN's local government accountability reporter and member of the investigations team. Thank you so much for reporting uh, for your reporting, Joshua. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Finally, on a roundup, a month of zip odes and celebrating the place you call home. Throughout April, O Miami and WLRN have been inviting you to write a zip ode, a five line poem inspired by your zip code. So far, more than 2000 zip odes have been submitted. And every week in April, we're choosing our favorite 10. Today, you'll hear three of them, starting with... My name is Christina Garcia. I live in Miami, and my zip code is 33145. The Ventanita lady calls me Mijita, and it feels like Mima is giving me a hug. The rules are simple. Each number of your zip code determines the number of words that that are in line, like this. Hi, my name is John Cordero. I live in Miami in zip code 33131, and this is my zip code. What is Miami? Paved over swamp or the magic city? Yes. Here's another one from Sonash Shanani, zip code 33155. The rain starts as I'm biking home. Everything is wet and noisy. A dog barks in Spanglish. You can hear these poems and more at our Zip Odes finale on April 26. To get more information about the finale and how to submit your own Zip Ode, visit WLRN.org slash Zip Odes. That would do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Tway. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateu Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's Vice President of News. The Vice President of Radio and Show's Technical Supervisor is Peter J. Meritz. Richard Ives answers the phones. And I'm Wilkin Brutus. Thanks for calling and listening. And remember, stay hydrated. Public Media.